This is CliffCentral.com. Change is something that one should expect in life because it comes, ready or not. It can be like a breath of fresh air or it can catapult you into an abyss. Fortunately, there are facilitators along the way to help us deal with the unknown. Hello, I'm Rudolf Landmann. Welcome to Change Matters, made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Education, like change, is one thing we cannot escape. Today we speak to performer and social activist Peter Dirk Eis, rapper and producer Proverb, Sangoma and life coach Gogo Deneo Ndlanzi, and media law guru Emma Sadler about education. One can say that for Peter Dirk Eis, relaying messages or speaking truth is a matter of life and death. He was a roaring voice during the injustices of apartheid, and he is still vocal, trying to get the youth to look out for their health and their future. The first school that I went to was an Afrikaans school, and it was a total disaster. I mean, me saying those things to an Afrikaans school. And I mean, I just went sometimes three schools a day, sometimes seven schools a week. I mean, it just was an obsession with me that I go from first world to second world to third world schools. And those mean schools that are a blackhousey and also the honor of women queen. I know I have a role. I know that I, thinking back to my school days at Nassau School in Ikab, when KPAB, sent a troop of actors with our set work plays, set work books. And they would come and they would do like 20 minutes from our set work and yes. just make it so alive. And we have never forgotten that. And I knew that if I go to a school with my entertainment and actually entertain these kids about the future and make them excited about the fact that they are responsible for what happens to them at the school, they need that education to actually change the world. They will never forget it. And I use words when I talk about sex. I, I use words. I said to them, you know, when I was your age, nobody talked about sex. It was totally unspoken about. We were talked talk about the birds and the bees. Talked about the birds and bees. Some of these, I said, listen, explain to me. How does a bird fuck a bee? You say that word in the school hall. I mean, I've seen teachers go white. The black teachers go white. <laughs> the kids. Well, first of all, they will listen to every word I say yes. after that. And I said to them, you're not going to hear that word again. I'm not here doing a, a demonstration of free speech. But I want you to know where the minefield is. That is where the minefield is. Now, you are in charge of your future. Saturday night, you're going to go to a party. And you all look like small convicts here in your uniforms. You look 12. You're not 12. At the party, you're going to look 24. You're going to look great. You're going to look very sexy. And sex is very exciting. It's very nice. Don't do it now, because you really, truly have got other things to do. So think about this very carefully. Make your decision. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying, you take a drug, can you think clearly? No. I said, okay. Mm. You can't think clearly, there's a virus. You make one mistake, your life changes. Forever. That's all. The kids are not stupid. Peter Dirk has been spreading the word about HIV and AIDS since the 90s, when he could no longer turn a blind eye to the deaths of so many of his young friends. To date, Peter Dirk, now in his 70s, has spoken to more than a million school kids. The change in my country, of course, changes my whole focus on where my material comes from. I'm terribly relieved that I'm not 19. That's why I've got to go to the 19-year-olds. And I spend most of my time doing that, going to the schools. I mean, I'm usually so exhausted when I drive through the Val Triangle, trying to find something that's not mm. on the map. Trying to go into a community in a township that has potholes that puts Joburg to, you know, Joburg is like big roads compared to these potholes. 
And they come towards me and they pick me up and they carry me into the hall. And they put me down on the stage and they sing for me for 20 minutes. And then I must really give them a life-changing experience of me coming to them. And my goodness, you know, I am such an optimist about this country. I am so thrilled and excited about where we are going. If we can keep our young people yes. alive with information and with, with courage and with respect. One kid who was also not stupid was Proverb, but he says he had a bit of a rocky start. I had a great opportunities. My parents were fortunately in a position where they could afford me great opportunities, take me to good schools. But at the time, I didn't recognize the value of, of uh, those opportunities, and I squandered a lot of them. You know, um, but it, it's, it's kind of only later on in life that, that I, I, I realized the opportunities I had squandered mm. and it, it's possibly shaped who I am now and how I view opportunities now. My first sort of job in the in the business was as a technical producer at a radio station YFM for DJ Fresh. Mm. You know, um, and I and I learned a lot from, from being with DJ Fresh. In fact I, I, I to this day I pay my respects to him a lot. Whenever you get an opportunity to interact with anybody Take as much as you can from them. Watch, learn, listen, but most importantly, ask. You know, I, I, I always say I have a big mouth and I, and I listen, I don't hold back and there's nothing as a silly question. And I always ask and ask and ask. And the little that I know is, is because I dare to ask. Someone will always know something you don't, you know. And I think that mindset is probably more important. By the time I did sound engineering, something definitely clicked. But I have to give credit to my mom, who never gave up on me at any point. Grandmother as well. You know, I, I owe them who I am. So when I came to Job again in 99, by the way, I matriculated in uh, 98, barely, all right? Um, I attempted IT. That was kind of the flavor at the, at the time, you know? failed dismally. I don't even think I made it to the exams. I think by July I was back at home already. Uh, then the following year, my folks again, um, bless their hearts, never gave up. We attempted computer science again, failed dismally. Then my mom said, look, uh, you're always sitting at the computer banging away and I'm always hearing sounds and music and I researched a little bit um, and there's a, there's a course called sound engineering. Would you consider something like that? Then I think uh, the combination, you know, of my of my passion for music um, and sound engineering, then it just clicked and everything mm -hmm. just kind of aligned. Man, then I, I went in there and I, I listen. I came up with distinctions for the first time in my life. Uh, I was even offered a job at the same institution to lecture other students. Uh, and I was employed as a as a, um, a student advisor for other students. So I, I I really look. I consider myself a late bloomer. But when I bloomed, I I really bloomed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then I it, it kind of just all clicked, yeah. and I haven't been the same person since. Society is sometimes designed in a particular way where where you're considered smart if you can do this. You're considered mm. athletic if you can do this. You're considered pretty if you look this way. And there's all these little boxes, you know. Listen, there was a point I was I was convinced that, that I'm, I'm sort of no good for nothing. In fact, in the song, uh, My Day Will Come, the, 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 first, the first bit, I'm talking about how I was, I was an underachiever, I was written off, I was kind of barely making it. But the truth is, 
I think I was just misplaced. I was just in, in, in the wrong space where I, I'm not good at. I'm still not academic to date. I, tr I try to be, you know, uh, every second year I'm registering for some course or other. But truth is, my, my calling is, is elsewhere and I really excel in that space, you know. Someone else who had a definite calling was Deneo Ndlanzi, who is affectionately known as Gogo Deneo. She was taken by surprise and totally unprepared for what her life would look like. This journey led her to teach and impart wisdom to people from all walks of life in a way that was new but made complete sense to her. My calling started when I was in school. I got a scholarship to go to a private school and I was having lots of episodes at school that I wasn't aware of, that my teachers actually came and spoke to my mom that I was, they were worried about my intelligence because I was taking it too far. I used to study the whole book in advance. By the time my teacher got there, I was like, no, that's not how it, it works. So they, they probably thought it was because of that. Yes, I would go and say I'm seeing things and I would be prophetic uh, in the class, but I wasn't, I don't remember those episodes. The psychiatrist could not find a thorough diagnosis for what was happening to me. Because when I was in conversation with them, I sounded proper. I only, it only became clearer that mental psychosis was attached to the calling when I went, I took a, a, you know, a group of business people to VETS, the origin center, just after it just opened. And we were speaking to a scientist about innovation and the birth of innovation and where we come from. So he spoke about the role of healers and African shamans in particular on the birthing of innovation and spoke about how science fails to understand when we are bathing into the call and when we are genuinely scientifically psychotic. So I was sitting at the back of the room and I cried because I said a lot of people find themselves in mental institutions and they're not supposed to be there because they are called into this work. You're working with an ether or with an energy that is not tangible. And schooling speaks about logical thinking. And this is very illogical, those practices, because in, in the belief system in which I belonged in, they were demonized, you know. You know, you were talking to the dead, you were talking to ancestors. The word ancestor was, was taboo in the church. So I started to ask God questions. I said, well, God, I'm a good young person. I go to church seven days a week. I'm in the church this and the church this, but nothing is coming forth. So I'm still stuck and I'm not seeing, I'm, I can't further my studies. I can't be in a good, healthy relationship. Everything I seem to hold does not last. What's really going on? I, I want to know who you are and work with me. And the answer was, was that we were called to sign up for Bible studies. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever been to because I went there thinking I will know Genesis to Revelation. But I, that really taught me who God is because that God is not in the church that I'm in or God is not that person that I, God is within. So God showed up in a Bible study because we had a different Bible study teacher who was teaching us spiritual understanding of who God is, not religious understanding. Then I became curious about my African identity because I started to question if I call the God of Abraham who I have no idea who he is. But I denounced the God of my people, you know, of my grandfather, a great honorable man who I attribute a lot of who I am today. It didn't make sense. It was a contradiction. So the more I started to ask questions and the more God showed up for me and God showed up in a way that really started to serve me and that started to open things up. I was trained as a Sangoma, but I'm trained in other healing modalities as well because what I need to connect to is to spirit. It's not to physical identities. It's not about, yes, because I, I would find people say, uh, yeah, but how come white people have callings? I'm like, well, spirit does not have race, does not have gender. It's, you know, so I feel like my work, my work as a Sangoma is beyond just African 
belief system. It's more about trying to help people understand their spiritual identities and that in spirit it's, there's no limitations and there are no boxes. So I'm always the one for experimenting, realizing what's new, what has shifted, because then we become relevant. So training in just being a Sangoma, it's never enough. If, you deal, if I deal with people who you tell them things, they emotionally break down because you're bringing or triggering old wounds. So I had to go study something else. I had to go do alternative therapy. I had to go do life coaching because somebody comes and they think it's ancestral, but it's not. You need clarity in your life and you need somebody who you know is trained and skilled to help you find that clarity. And it requires no medicine. It requires no boundary. It requires none of those things. It just requires somebody to facilitate that. So that's what I believe just being Sangoma is narrow because we, if we are holistic healers, at least let's have basic skills and understanding on other modalities and practices, psychology, you know, health. I'm a big fan of nutrition and health because sometimes people imbalances are caused by, by health. Disease is what is not at ease in your body. So, so that's what I mean by Sangoma not being enough. And sometimes people come to us and I'm like, you actually need a medical doctor. Yeah. Or you need to go really seek a psychiatrist because this seems like there's some deep, something deep. I can help you at this level, but I can't go deeper than than that because I'm not skilled to take you there. So it's it's a, it's, a, it's an act of integrity for me. I'm not only now a Sangoma, I train other healers. But it's been a gift because I always tell them that, yes, I'm your trainer, but you're my teacher too. Because I have attracted you for my own spiritual growth because I said my work is to heal and is to facilitate healing. I'm not, it means you, you also require permission from others. Others, you know, you require permission from those you are working with, but the, with the non-visible as well, with the people's ancestors. Talking about permission, media law practitioner and author of the book, Don't Film Yourself Having Sex, Emma Sadler helps people make sense of the new information technology era, which is fraught with pitfalls for the unsuspecting. I think I'm quite nosy and I quite like the gossip. So I always found it fascinating to sit down and read these cases. And I absolutely fell in love with the law from my very first day where I was dealing with a case that I will never ever forget, <laughs> which involved me phoning the IT department to get them to unlock my computer because I had to go onto all of these um, uh, sex chat rooms and things. And I, I just was hooked. It was so interesting, it was so current, but it, it was a privacy and dignity case um, about somebody who had been featured in an article in a newspaper and had said that he was effectively outed um, as homosexual. As and I had to spend a lot of time researching what sentiment, what the sentiment was about the case. And um, I, it was just, I, I remember just feeling electric. And I came home from work that day and, and I was hooked. And so simply what the law says is that as soon as content has been seen by one other person, then the laws kick in. So what I say on a WhatsApp group to five people, what I say on Facebook to 500 people, what I say on Twitter to 30,000 people, as soon as it's been seen by one other person, then in the eyes of the law, that content is treated as if you published it on the front page of the newspaper. Under RICA, the Regulation of Interception of Communications Act, a direct communication, so that's a communication just between you and the other person, um, you have an expectation of privacy over that communication. Unless it's from a work device or over the work network or in the course and scope of your employment because then Big Brother can watch you even if it's a private communication. Um, but say we, you and I are just chatting on WhatsApp and maybe I say something that you find hilarious um, and you take a screenshot of it and then you send it to somebody else and they send it on, they send it on and then it gets back to the boss that I've been talking about what a complete idiot I think he is. Then I can still be disciplined as a result of that content 
even though you've breached my privacy along the way. When something is digital, it's out of your control. Um, because phones get lost, phones get stolen, phones get hacked. We saw that with Jennifer Lawrence. She had these naked pictures of herself. She'd taken these photos, she looked at them, she thought, this isn't for me, this sexting thing. She deleted them. But for the four seconds those photos were on her phone, they were automatically backing up to her iCloud, and her iCloud got hacked. People are learning from experience and learning that there are limits to the right to freedom of expression, but I think we still face a problem with desperate ignorance about what it means to have this power on social media and, and how badly things can go wrong and how quickly. I remember receiving a phone call from a father who was absolutely hysterical. His son went to one of the best private schools in South Africa and his son had started a parody account in the name of one of the teachers and was facing expulsion um, a couple of months before the end of his matric year. And his father was beside himself. It was on Twitter. And he said, I don't even know what this Twitter is. And then something just clicked. I did a, a big interview on um, carte blanche. And the feedback that I got from that show, I realized just how desperate people were for the message. And I, I suppose, you know, when, when people ask me what's the worst part of my job, it's that I feel like I'm scaring people off otherwise really incredible tools. Um, I say I, I describe what I do with the children as the modern-day equivalent of the drug talk. Sometimes, um, you know, the reputational harm cannot be undone, and the internet is a very permanent place, which is why I think um, education and prevention is better than cure. What's important is to remember that the way the South African law is formulated in terms of privacy is the more you look after your privacy, the more of it you have. And so I really take that to heart. I, um, because so often I'm the first point of call when people have got it wrong or been the victim of something on social media. And I actually, I dedicated my book to a girl who I call Miss Kay, who um, is exactly the same age as me, professional. She went to school in Johannesburg. She went to UCT. And she dated this guy. And one night he filmed them having sex. She had no idea. She was um, absolutely oblivious to the fact that he was filming her. He had his laptop next to the bed ostensibly to play music, and he had positioned himself in such a way that his um, face wasn't in the shot. And um, they broke up, and a few months later, she got a, a, an hysterical phone call from a friend saying, have you Googled yourself? And she did this, and the first result was her Facebook account. Her second result was her LinkedIn account. And the third to 300th results was this video that this ex-boyfriend of hers had taken, the sex tape, um, on all these porn-sharing websites. Um, and so she landed up changing her name. And for me, that was the final straw. Um, I needed to write this book. I needed the message to go out there. I feel so helpless when people phone me. So I am on an educational mission, and I will continue it. Uh, the more avenues I find to, to spread the message of social media responsibility, um, the better. And Emma is going from strength to strength, informing people about the snares and snags of the new but necessary ways of communicating. Education clearly is never-ending, and these days, ever-changing. Thanks for listening to Change Matters, made just for you by BrightRock, the first-ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Make sure you catch every episode of Change Matters. This is CliffCentral.com.